0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global
1: epidemic. These are their stories.
2: Hello, cardio nerds. It's Hamid. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us for the Cardio Nerds Narratives and Cardiology series designed to promote diversity and inclusion in our beloved field because our differences do make us stronger. In this powerful discussion with Dr. Quinn Capers IV, led by Dr. Zarina Sharalaya and Dr. Greg Ogonawo, we discuss the importance of diversity for health equity, clinical excellence, and research innovation. We also discuss imposter syndrome, implicit bias, and strategies to diversify our field. As we dive into the personal narratives of these incredible individuals, we discuss the experience of being a black man in cardiology. We are so thankful to the one and only Dr. Kimberly Manning for providing an incredible introduction to the man who needs no introductions, Dr. Quinn Capers. So Dr. Manning, Dr. Capers IV, Dr. Sharalaya, and Dr. Ogunowo, thank you so much for elevating the CardioNerds Narratives and Cardiology series. And a big thanks to Dr. Pamela Douglas for sowing the seeds and providing incredible encouragement and mentorship in developing this entire program.
3: Hello CardioNerds, thanks so much for joining us as we continue our narrative series highlighting the different paths and stories of pioneers in the field of cardiology. We are so excited for today's discussion with a truly special guest, someone who's been a tremendous influence and mentor in my life and training past, Dr. Quinn Capers IV. Welcome to the show, Dr. Capers.
0: Thank you so much, Zarina. It's such a pleasure to be here to talk about things that I'm passionate about and added pleasure that it's you and I getting to have this conversation.
3: Thank
4: you. Dr. Capers, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. I've been following you throughout my internal medicine career. And as a cardiology fellow, I feel completely honored and humbled to take part in this Cardio Nerds episode. In regards to seeing people in cardiology that represent minorities, I would have to say you are at the pinnacle. You have shown that it's possible for minorities to be successful in cardiology, and I truly appreciate that.
0: Well, Greg, I mean, you humble me with your words. I'm very moved by what you just said. It's truly a pleasure to meet you, and you're going to surpass anything that people like me have done. I can, I can feel it.
2: Dr. Kaber's it is such an honor to have you with us your support advocacy and impact has been felt by countless mentees colleagues and cardiologists everywhere we feel privileged to have you as an advisor for this very narrative series. I know this will be a very special discussion. And so to get us started, we asked an equally special individual to help us introduce the man who requires no introduction. She herself is an incredible advocate and educator an absolute changemaker, a visionary of our times who has inspired so many of us to be better. With that, I'd like to share a few words from the Dr. Kimberly Manning Professor of Medicine, Program Director for the Transitional Year Residency Program, and Associate Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Department of Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine.
1: Hey, Cardio Nerds, hold up, wait a minute. This is Dr. Kimberly Manning, and y'all, I am so excited to have the opportunity to introduce the amazing Dr. Quinn Capers IV. Listen, you gotta say the fourth when you're talking about Dr. Capers, okay? That's lesson number one today. Let me tell you just a little bit about this amazing human being and leader. Dr. Capers grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and left his hometown to do his undergraduate training at historic Howard University. H U. He began his journey in medicine at The Ohio State University and went on to do residency cardiology fellowship and interventional cardiology training at Emory University School of Medicine. After his graduation, he worked for eight years in private practice and made the switch back to academics and came back to his home state of Ohio to join the Ohio State and continue his career. In 2009, Dr. Capers was named Associate Dean of Admissions And in 10 years, the College of Medicine went from just 13 percent underrepresented minorities to a whopping 26 percent of the 2019 entering class. And in the last six years, women have outnumbered men in the incoming classes at The Ohio State. In 2019, Dr. Capers was promoted to vice dean for faculty affairs, received the award for professor of the year and the diversity champion award from The Ohio State University. Most recently, the state of Texas gained an absolute gem as Dr. Capers moved his time, his talents, and his family to join the UT Southwestern School of Medicine as professor of medicine, associate dean of faculty diversity, and the inaugural vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Department of Internal Medicine. He has an expansive list of accolades and awards. Dr. Capers was awarded the American Heart Association's Lanek Clinician Educator Award in 2018. He was recognized as the 2020 recipient of the Exemplary Leadership Award of the Group on Diversity and Inclusion from the Association of American Medical Colleges, AAMC. He's an inaugural member of the American College of Cardiology's Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, and in 2021, he received the Pamela S. Douglas Distinguished Award for Leadership in Diversity and Inclusion. Dr. Capers has had an impactful presence on social media, where he created the hashtags hashtag Black men in medicine to counter the negative stereotypes of Black men and hashtag take a woman to the cath lab to show that women, of course, are bosses. Dr. Capers is a passionate advocate for enhancing diversity and inclusion, a champion for improving health equity, and a devoted member to countless trainees. He's also a committed father and a committed husband. And I have to say is the reason why my military push-up game is much stronger thanks to his hashtag drop and give me 20 campaign that helped me do 20 push-ups a day, just to keep up with him on Twitter. Y'all, it is my privilege to introduce this amazing leader, human being, and one of my personal heroes, Dr. Quinn Capers IV. Wow,
0: I'm stunned. So Dr. Manning is one of my favorite people on the planet. That was just so incredibly kind, so incredibly warm. And now I kind of lost some of the things in my mind that I wanted to talk about. (laughs) But an incredible, <laughs> incredible introduction. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Manning. We'll catch up later for sure.
3: Well, that was an incredible introduction. And I myself have been so fortunate to have been able to start off my medical education with the support of you, Dr. Capers. And personally, from the moment I heard your voice on the phone and you called to personally tell me that I had been accepted into the Ohio State University College of Medicine, I just knew how passionate you were about your work. And your presence in the hospital, especially, is immediately felt by everyone. You bring a smile to everyone around you. Trainees look up to you as an inspiring mentor. And I remember being in the cath lab with you. Patients feel an instant calm in the cath lab during an emergency situation. So we are so excited to have you on the show.
0: Thank you, Serena. I'm so proud of you and everything you've done. And thank you for such kind and glowing words.
4: All right, so to set the stage, I would actually like to start by reading an excerpt from a perspective paper that was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Ellis et al. which actually highlights common concepts that Black applicants like myself experience during interviews. The paper starts off like this. Inside a conference room with a long wooden table, black residency applicant sat next to 12 other applicants on interview day. None of their peers were black. Across the table hung photos of faculty members, including the program director, medical director, and department chair. None of them were black. In the corner of the room, administrators and coordinators were monitoring the agenda. None of them were black. Rosters with descriptions and headshots of the faculty interviewers were distributed None were black. Later, residents spoke to applicants over lunch and nurses sat at their workstations during the tour. None were black. During the course of the interview day, the black applicant was asked whether they were lost and twice was assumed to be anyone but an applicant. They were told that they had an unusual name and that they were articulate. At the end of the interview, the black applicant wondered, do I fit in here? Dr. Capers, to be honest, after reading this article, it felt like an excerpt from my personal life. The hard to pronounce last name, comments of how I speak, all of it. In medicine, we go through the interview process so frequently through med school, residency, fellowship, that I almost normalize some of these experiences. Certainly not for every single interview, but it was actually pretty common. Reading this article is a reminder that although it is common, it doesn't mean it should be the accepted norm.
2: Thanks for sharing that, Greg. It's such a powerful visual and a striking portrayal of how this could so negatively impact an individual's perception of the program and more importantly, their own confidence and self-esteem. You know, training is hard enough as it is without these external factors.
3: Dr. Capers, what are your thoughts on this? I'd, I'd like to think that these are isolated instances, the exceptions rather than the norm, but what's been your experience?
0: So first of all, I'd like to thank the authors because these are thoughts that need to be out there. People need to hear these internal monologues. You know, what, what strikes me about that narrative that you just read is that the academic medical centers where they were interviewing probably think they're doing a good job of being fair, probably think they're doing a good job of treating everybody equitably. So this is an example of a structural bias or structural racism where when we say structural racism, the way it differs from individual racism is you can't point your finger at one person and say, this is because of Joe or this is because of Mary. It is structural, it's institutional, and very often the institutions might not realize that they're carrying on something that that simply extends a legacy of bias and exclusion. So for example it might be at a medical school that at one point excluded people of color. So what that means is that the department chairs and the luminaries and the deans are all going to be people who are not people of color. And so if in your conference room you hang portraits of the luminaries, you aren't going to have any people of color. Now that medical school will say, well, I wasn't doing anything to make anybody feel an imposter syndrome or to be uh, biased. All we're doing is honoring the heroes of our medical school. Well, that may be, but at one point, your medical school excluded women or excluded people of color. And so the point is that as a medical center, as a division of cardiology, as a department of medicine, you have to actively undo some things. You can't just start from where you are and say, well, I'm a good person and I'm the chair of medicine, and so I'm going to be sure we don't discriminate. You've actually got to put in some work to actively undo some of the things that are extending a legacy of of bias and racism. That's what I took from that. I took both from it what this person was feeling. They did an excellent job outlining their feelings. But what I took from that also, and because I've seen it, is that the person who is the fellowship director or the, the internal medicine residency director or whatever program this person was interviewing from, when they read it, I would bet you they got a little defensive because they probably felt, no, we treat everybody the same. But again, I'll just end my comments on we need to actively undo the structural racism and bias that's just in the air in at any atmosphere at our institutions.
2: Thank you, Dr. Capers. And, you know, I appreciate you talking about how the history behind some of these structural racism, these biases, you know, they're insidious and not necessarily from malignant intent, but no less harmful. And you started off by saying that these conversations are important to have and, you know, just actually having these narratives discussions has been a little bit of a coming of age for for my own self you know when we first started designing these uh, greg and Zorina know because we had a lot of conversations about this in the beginning we were a little sheepish about having these conversations so explicitly and so deliberately and i got to call out and give a shout out to dr manning because it was a conversation i had with her one evening when i was picking up my son i remember very clearly and she really was the one who gave us a license to go out and have these conversations and be explicit about it because she said look you don't know what you don't talk about You know, so I really give her a lot of credit for empowering us to bring about this series and, you know, having these conversations. So I'd love to play a game of fact or fiction to first explore the value of diversity and inclusion. And so first, we'll offer a few statements. And if you could tell us if this is fact or fiction and why. So Zarina, you
0: want to kick us off?
3: Fact or fiction, minority patients are more likely to follow recommendations of minority physicians.
0: Oh, that's a, that's a strong fact. That's, a, that's an easy one. So it's been shown in multiple studies that minority patients are more likely to get their blood sugar checked, more likely to get their blood cholesterol checked, and more likely to get flu shots, flu vaccinations, if recommended by a minority physician. And here's a big one for all of the cardiologists out there listening. Black patients specifically are more likely to have open heart surgery if recommended by a black as opposed to non-black physicians. And I think when we think about the number one medical issue going on right now, this COVID-19 pandemic, and how we're all wrestling with and all concerned about vaccine hesitancy in communities of color. So there's a mistrust of the healthcare system as a group in communities of color, and it's well earned, right? It's because there have been historic atrocities committed against people of color going all the way back to slavery times. And so when people of color have some mistrust, that's, you know, another way to call that is they're intelligent to have some mistrust. So we need more doctors of color and we need our white physicians working side by side with doctors of color so that we can all get more culturally competent to get our patients doing the things that we know will help them. But that is an absolute fact. Thanks for asking that question.
4: All right, Dr. Capers. Here's another one for you. Professional diversity has no bearing on addressing health care disparities.
0: That's uh, absolutely false. So it's been shown. Now, health care disparities, which is an interest of mine, which, by the way, I'll I'll give a shout out to Zarina. We co-authored a review paper on racial health care disparities in cardiology some years ago, and she was uh, an absolutely fantastic co-author. It is multifactorial. And when I say health care disparities... I'm talking about when two groups of people with the same diagnoses get different levels of treatment, get different levels of quality, evidence-based care. That kind of healthcare care disparity is a real embarrassment to our healthcare system, and it's something that really drives me to do so much of what I do. Well, it's multifactorial. So in a, a lecture that I've been given to first-year medical students for over a decade now, and Zarina was in those lectures, we talk about healthcare disparities and then I'll put up a blank slide and we say, now let's come up with a list, a list of potential culprits. And then I'll put up another blank slide and say, now let's come up with a list of potential action items so that we can get over these healthcare care disparities. And I only say that I mention that just because there really are many things that lead to the healthcare disparities. But there is no doubt, Greg, that one of them is a lack of diversity amongst the providers. And some of that leads back to the question that I was just asked about patients of color having evidence based care. That is more likely to happen if we have more minority physicians.
2: You know, that really speaks to this wonderful conversation, recording we just shared with Dr. La Princess Brewer. And she talked about this amazing impact she's having with her program called Faith, partnering with community churches in communities of color. To improve and enhance preventive measures, you know, she's doing this uh, community-based participatory research, and and she talked. One, she talked about the lack of trust that even she met with uh, when she first began in that community. So, you know, she herself, who's so dedicated, had to build the trust. But one thing that she said that really spoke to me is the way she worded it. She said, "These communities that I am blessed to serve, right? And so, you know, even though she's putting her heart and soul into this project, she's working so hard, spending so many hours of every single day." Her perspective is that it's her blessing to be able to serve the community, you know, and I think that really speaks to how this is a calling for people and is so important.
0: I couldn't agree more. I love that terminology. We're servants. I mean, physicians are servants. I, I couldn't agree with Dr. Brewer more. We- we're the lucky ones. That's
2: wonderful. Um, okay, so the next statement. Diverse research teams produce more innovative science published in higher impact journals.
0: That is uh, a fact. So I'm excited about this research study, it was actually published in 2018, but I, I, I recently discovered it by Professor Alshabli. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, where in this study, they uh, actually went after that very question, does diversity of the research team have anything to do with the impact of the research that's produced? And they defined impact by the number of citations of the paper. And so they looked at 9 million scientific papers, science technology, engineering, and medicine papers, nine million. And what they were looking for to see was do the citations, the number of times the paper's been cited, does it have anything to do with diversity on that research team? They looked at diversity of affiliation, so if people were from different universities, diversity of how long you've been in academia, they looked at gender diversity, and they looked at racial and ethnic diversity. All of those types of diversities had some impact on citation. But the number one driver, the strongest indicator of the number of times a paper would be cited was how diverse was the research team, racially and ethnically diverse. So racial and ethnic diversity on the research team drives the impact of the research, which just makes sense with what we know about decision making. It's what we know from uh, literature from the business world, that executive boards of businesses where there is extreme homogeneity You know, everybody came from a two parent family and they're all white males and they all wear Brooks Brothers suit to work every day. And you have this homogeneity. Those boards make decisions that are less profitable, less profitable than if there is some diversity on that board. So it brings innovation. It brings uh, creative tension, which can lead to really innovative ideas. And so I'm glad that, uh, that that's been proven. So that statement that you just made is a fact.
2: Yeah, this is all very consistent with what we learned from Dr. Pamela Douglas in our first Narratives episode. So it seems incontrovertible that diversity enhances patient care. It reduces healthcare disparity. It improves the impact of our science and our research. It increases creativity. So if that's all true, and it is, it should stand to reason that the intermediate goal would be to improve the diversity within our own workforce. So, in a recent article that you published in Jaha, a survey of cardiology program directors revealed that while 69% of respondents endorse the belief that diversity is a driver of excellence in healthcare, like we're discussing, only 6% of the respondents believe that diversity should be in the top three list of priorities for recruiting. So, how can we work to address this so that cardiology as a field is diversified?
0: Well, as physicians, we are evidence-based. We want to make decisions based on evidence. And so... Just like I'm not going to stop using one blood thinner and start using another one just because a pharmaceutical sales rep says to do so. When they tell me that, I'm going to say, you know, show me the data. Show me the data that one outperforms the other. And that's what will drive my decision making. The same thing we we have to do with our colleagues who are fellowship program directors, residency program directors, admissions committee members. We've got to be very active and almost missionary about showing them the data showing them some of the data that we we just discussed. I personally think that being on one of these, and I like to call them, I think of them as gatekeepers, the people who are at that gate, who decide who goes forward and who does not. That's search committees for leadership positions in academic medicine, search committees for new faculty, fellowship program directors and their selection committees, residency program directors and their selection committees, admissions committee members, college admissions committee members, If you want to go all the way back to grade school, the teacher who has the responsibility of deciding which of the fourth graders will be referred to the gifted and talented programs and which ones will not, gatekeepers. So I like to think a lot about these gatekeepers. I think it's an honor and a privilege to be on a selection committee, whether it's residency, fellowship, or faculty, or an admissions committee to medical school. And so that honor should come with some responsibilities. Other committees, you know, we have no problem being on other committees and other types of committees will say, well, to be on this committee, we got to get everybody up to speed. So everybody read these five papers or everybody do these modules, these online learning modules. I believe we should have the same kind of strategy for our admissions committees, residency committees, fellowship selection committees. If you're going to be on this committee, there are some, there's some responsibilities. You have to read these papers, or go to these modules, or attend these lectures, uh, et cetera. So I think, to answer your question, the way that we will get over that hump and turn the needle is by making more data that shows the diversity enhances quality, but we've got a ton of it already, making sure that our gatekeepers are aware of this data.
3: Yeah, those are all great points, Dr. Capers. And, you know, just to kind of speak to that a little bit, from my own experience in medical school, I was fortunate to be part of the admissions committee as a medical student. And I myself remember taking part in the implicit bias training that was required for all members of the medical school admissions committee and just how eye-opening it was in general to realize that many do have unconscious bias. And, you know, I think This doesn't necessarily mean that you're racist or even that you have discriminated against someone, but it does reveal an implicit bias which may be affecting your behavior. And, you know, I read a statement that you had made in an article about how admissions committees are the front door to medical schools, so they have a strong impact on the health of this nation. Can you explain a bit about what you meant by this?
0: Sure. So you don't get to become a physician until you get by, so to speak, that medical school admissions committee. So what that means, if you look at the hundreds of thousands of physicians practicing in the United States, all of them at one point or another were given the thumbs up by an admissions committee. So our admissions committees as the front door, as the filter might be another way you'd say it, have an incredible responsibility because they are crafting our nation's physician workforce, which has so much to do with the health of the nation. So again, it goes back to what I was saying. It's an incredible honor to be on an admissions committee or a fellowship or residency selection committee.
4: Dr. Capers, thank you so much for that comment. And Serena, you know, I would also like to piggyback off of your statement earlier. I was also able to play a role on the admission committee as a med student and also during residency as a hospitalist. And I'm actually impressed by the fact that you were offered courses on implicit bias on the admissions committee. I think it's extremely important to have some of those things highlighted because you're absolutely right. It makes a huge difference on how we evaluate it and how we choose certain applicants. It's impressive that even on the residency level in a highly academic institution, you would think some of these things would be set in place to prevent implicit biases from happening. But I think that's a very interesting topic and I think something that should be done across all admission communities throughout the nation. Because as you said, Dr. Capers, it's we are the gatekeepers. We are the people who allow, who are essentially shaping the future workforce of physicians. And if biases are kind of set in place, certain people won't be able to be offered an opportunity. And our physician workforce would be extremely homogenous. And patients may not be able to get the most appropriate care that they need.
0: Well, Greg, so there's hope. I'll tell you that a lot of people are, are, are doing just what you've suggested. So I'm aware of a paper where radiology residency training program, I forget which university, they're doing something similar to what we did at Ohio State with implicit bias testing and then implicit bias mitigation training. I've been coast to coast talking to academic medical centers about this, and many residency programs are considering it or starting to do the same thing. So I think the future is bright.
4: That's excellent. And to kind of piggyback off of this, how do you think we can help recruit individuals from diverse backgrounds early in their education?
0: Exposure is so, so very important for young people. I mean, if you think back to when you were a youngster, what you saw was so important in what you aspire to be, right? So, I mean, if you, if you see superheroes on television, you know, you want to be Spider-Man. And if you see police officers in a positive light, you want to be a police officer. And so, We have to expose young people. If we want to compete with other professions, we have to expose them to medicine. I was always a big, big fan as a student, as a youngster of career day. I would always get very excited uh, on career day where people in different professions would come and talk to us about what they were doing. Uh, We all need to make sure that we're still doing those kinds of things because, you know, in the day-to-day routine work of, say, a fourth grader or a fifth grader, you really can, they could lose sight of why they're working or why it's important to do their homework, why it's important to listen to the teacher. And then in comes a cardiologist to say, you know, this is what I do. It's a blast. I save people. It's the number one cause of death. And I really feel like I'm making a contribution. But it all starts with you as a fifth grader paying attention to your teacher and doing your homework. That's very powerful. And so I think we have to be working on two fronts simultaneously. I've spent uh, a lot of time As an Interventional Cardiology Fellowship Program Director and as an admissions dean for a decade, I spent a lot of time on what we call the end game, the selection processes, working with the gatekeepers. But equally as important is working on the pipeline, trying to shore up that pipeline, get more and more young people interested in becoming a doctor.
3: Going back to that perspective paper we had discussed earlier, there were many topics and concepts raised that apply to individuals of diverse backgrounds at interviews, including stereotype threat, tokenism, microaggression, and imposter syndrome. As a woman in cardiology, imposter syndrome in particular is sort of a common topic of discussion in various forums and at women in cardiology seminars, something that I myself have experienced at times in my training. Do you have any advice for trainees that experience this?
0: Yes. So this imposter syndrome, which is, you know, uh, just a wonderful term. It really is a description of this feeling that you may have that, you know what, I don't really belong here. I'm not really smart enough to be here. I don't know if they know it yet. They might know it. They might find out. And boy, I don't want them to find out. That's that's a terrible burden for somebody to carry around with them, thinking that if I answer the question wrong, they're going to discover that I'm not smart enough to be here. Or if I do something, make a mistake with this procedure, they're going to find me out that I don't belong here. I think the best way to deal with that is to talk to people who share your background. And if you can't talk to somebody that shares your background, read about somebody that shares your background. Because we don't all have access to somebody who shares our exact culture, who is doing what we want to do. But learning about them, reading about them can kind of help with your confidence. And then what I want to say on the other side, now that I'm on the other side of that, those of us who are medical educators, we have to go out of our way to make sure that shy person over there in the corner on rounds, that they're not feeling that and that we can do the best we can to make them say, you do belong here. And it takes all types.
4: Dr. Capers, that was spot on. You know, I, I completely understand what you mean when you say some of these things, Arena. I felt this during residency and even as a, as a fellow here. Coming into this huge, world-renowned institution and um, the only black fellow, many times I think, when will they find me out? When will they spot me out? But, you know, I've looked to successful people in color in cardiology like Dr. Capers, yourself, Clyde Yancey, someone in research, Dr. Gary Gibbons at the NIH, all successful, widely productive men who are just like me. So research exactly like you said, Dr. Capers, I look you all up. I see what you all do. I follow you on Twitter to gain some of that assurance that I am in the right place and that I was selected for a reason and their potential to do great things like the people before me is there. All I have to do is work hard.
2: Greg, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, that's a perfect tie-in to this next portion as we switch over to the narratives portion of this talk, where we get to learn
4: more about the leaders who inspire us. Greg, would you kick us off? Dr. Capers, we saw a recent Twitter post of yours showing a picture of you taking the ninth grade and what was on your mind back then, including football, basketball, science, Spider-Man, trying to look cool, and a mission to become a doctor. When you think back on your story, Do you remember the moment you decided that you would or could become a cardiologist?
0: Cardiologist, yes, I I do. Uh, It was uh, my biology class in high school, freshman year, my first biology class. So I'd already knew I wanted to be a doctor. You know, we talked earlier about calling, so medicine is a calling for me. So I never really wanted to do anything else as a profession. So I knew from the time I was a toddler that I wanted to be a doctor. But cardiology came into my life with my very first biology class in high school and for some reason in this biology class we did the circulation last. So we started, you know, with the nervous system and you know, for somebody who wants to be a doctor, it's all interesting. So I was like, "Wow, this is pretty cool, the nervous system." And then we did the musculoskeletal system and I said, "Wow, this is pretty cool." And then we did the digestive system and it was all cool, but then when we got to the heart and the arteries and the veins, I mean, my mind was blown. I just loved everything about it. I loved how the heart and the arteries and the veins, they talk to each other. I found that fascinating. And sometime at freshman year, first semester, I found out maybe through something I heard on the news that heart disease is the number 1 killer in the nation. Then I was hooked. I said not only is this something that I'm extremely passionate about, but but it's the number 1 killer. So Here's where I feel like I can make a difference. Now, I didn't know the difference as a freshman in high school between a cardiologist and a cardiac surgeon. To me, there's are just heart doctors. So I knew at that time that I had to be a doctor that was involved in taking care of people with heart disease.
3: Love that story, Dr. Cooper. So, you know, you have accomplished so much in your career. How do you manage to keep it all balanced with work and making time for family? You know, what
0: I think is so important, Serena, because I absolutely adore my family. And I put a high priority on family time. But I also feel like I'm on a mission in my professional life. And, you know, often there are long hours. And so the way I've balanced it is by early on appreciating and saying to myself that every day is not going to be balanced. So if the ideal is for you to spend, let's say, 50% of your day thinking about your career and uh, 50% of your day loving on your family, Every day is not going to be 50-50, not seven days a week. It's just not possible for people who are this driven in their career. But if by the end of the week or by the end of the month, it averages out, then that's okay. So in other words, with a very long week, I made it my business that while I might want to sleep in on Saturday morning, I'm not going to sleep in on Saturday morning. I'm going to get up. I'm going to make my wife breakfast in bed. Then I'm going to get the kids up. We're going to the zoo. And then after the zoo, even though I'm tired, we're going to watch some Disney movie. I know more about Disney princesses than any man (laughs) is supposed to know about Disney princesses. I've seen them all. And then after that, then it's to get ice cream, and then it's to walk in the park. And so by the end of that week, you know, the fact that I was getting home at 9 o'clock every night during the weekday, by the end of Saturday and Sunday, it kind of evens out. So that's kind of how I balance it. And also by having a wonderful partner, my wife, you know, we we made deals, and one deal I made was I want to put the kids down to bed. I want that to be my job because I knew I wasn't going to be there a lot during the day, and so bath time and story time was 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 my responsibility. So if I didn't get home until nine o'clock, uh, it was okay because because the kids knew that Daddy is gonna he's gonna we're gonna get bath time, which is fun and just splashing bubbles all over the place, and put on our pajamas and say our prayers and then have a have a fun story. So that's the way I balanced it. But, you know, it could be as individual as many people as you ask that question. But I think what was key was realizing that getting back to that analogy, not every day is going to be 50-50. And you have to be OK with that. If Monday through Thursday you don't get to see your spouse as much as you'd like, then you've got to make up for it on Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. But it should all hopefully come close to, to evening out.
2: I love that, Dr. Papers, And, you know, I think it's just uh, trying to balance kids and work and all these other things. I, I like being able to anchor at least one activity that you're going to have with them. You know, bedtime, story time, bath time. I think that's something that you can hold on to. And I loved everything you said, except for one thing, when you mentioned about giving your wife breakfast in bed. I think if my wife heard that, I'd be in hot water. So uh, I have to decide whether or not I'm going to leave that in the recording.
0: Well, well, yeah, you, you, you can delete that in the, in the post-editing.
2: Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Um, But, you know, on the topic of family, I'd like to ask you about a painting that your daughter drew and painted that you share on social media, on your lectures and talks. And it features a Black man in the middle. To his right are coronavirus particles. And we know that COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected communities of color. Uh, To his left are policemen who are holding a gun pointed at him. And under their feet is uh, a Black man in handcuffs laying on the floor. And we know that some communities of color have also been subjects of police brutality. And behind him is a city on fire. So, you know, there's, there's pain and anguish all around him. But, you know, if you look at him, you know, his stance is one of strength. He's pushing on both sides. And as you've described him, you know, the, the expression on his face is one of determination. And what I want to ask you is, as a father, you know, I mentioned my son Dhruv. I, I have two new babies, Arav and Athar. And, and as a father, I would want them to stay... Innocent for as long as possible. You know, I'd I'd want them to not feel these these atrocities within our, our culture for as long as possible, you know. But when your daughter drew this, she's clearly feeling these problems on a whole new and different deep level. So if if I may ask, how did you feel when you realized that your children are feeling these things? You know, like it's not that innocence may not be there. And, and how do you debrief with your daughter, and your students, your mentees, uh, when it comes to these atrocities.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for mentioning that piece of work. It, it's very important to me, and I'm, I'm very proud of it, as you, as you can tell. And, uh, and we were really proud when it graced the cover of the journal Academic Medicine in December 2020. So I'm proud uh, of her, and I'm proud of my children. I uh, never had a problem with them understanding that the world is not perfect. We keep trying to get it right. And I'll tell you this uh, anecdote about my other daughter. I have two daughters. I have a son and two daughters. My other daughter, the baby of the family, one thing that made me really proud was I heard her telling her mother a story about a conversation at school, and she might have been in like the fifth or the sixth grade, and it was an innocent story. Some white children had heard the N-word. They didn't know what it meant. My daughter wasn't in the conversation but one little white girl said to the other little white girl, what does that word mean? And the other white girl said, oh, it means black people. So my daughter ins- then inserted herself into the conversation. She said, no, that's not what that means. That's a, that's a bad word. And that hurts black people when you use that word. And they said, OK. And then they all, I think, went and jump roped or something like that. But I was incredibly proud when I, when I heard that. So I never had a problem with my children understanding the world isn't perfect but we've got a role to play and we keep trying, keep trying, keep trying.
4: You know, Dr. Capers, when I first saw that picture, I was incredibly moved and I thought it was amazing that you were able to post that picture, but it also made me reflect on the fact that many times children of color have to grow up early and we're not afforded that innocence you speak of, Ahmed. You know, from a very young age, we are known that we are different. And we face many things, many younger kids our age may not have to face. You mentioned your daughter, you know, her young age in grade school was a mature person and explaining that this word means this and this word symbolizes pain. You know, that's I'm sure she was in grade school, but she already was mature enough to understand and to communicate those feelings. 14-year-old kids, black kids, kids of color are being murdered and tried as adults, you know, it. it seeing this picture and you know made me feel all of these feelings and understand that it's incredibly humbling to see this picture it's incredibly amazing that your daughter had the maturity to draw this picture with so many different meanings and to show that as a physician a black physician we are standing strong amongst what seems like the world crashing down corona on one side police brutality on the other side and, you know, a a city on fire in the back. You know, I was truly, truly, you know, touched on many, many different levels by this picture. And, you know, I actually wanted to communicate that to you when I met you.
0: Well, thank you. I will tell Christian, that's my daughter, Christian Capers, who who drew that. I will tell her tonight. We very moved as am I. Thank you very much.
3: Dr. Capers, you've been described as a physician activist. Do you Recall a particular moment in your journey through medicine that made you want to combine your desire to treat patients with improving the world around you with respect to justice and equality? Was there a particular moment where you kind of made that connection?
0: Great question, Zarina. I don't know if there was a particular question. Those two things just kind of came together organically because both of them were in me. Like I said, I always wanted to be a doctor. And I always, even as a child, felt very keenly racial injustice and had a desire to do something to eliminate or reduce, to a degree that I can, racial injustice. So the two of them just wed so naturally uh, within me. But yeah, even at a young age, I wanted to, to do what I can to make sure that people are being treated fairly. I think it's so logical, though, for doctors to be activists, because as I've said before, what we're trying to do is, is heal our patients and make our patients better. And there are many examples in history of physicians feeling like they want to do that with the world. They want to make society better. They want to heal society. And certainly one of the most malignant diseases in society is racism. So I think it's a natural for for doctors to want to go beyond that patient in front of you and think about how society is impacting this patient and then wanting to do something. And so being an activist, might be writing your congressperson it might be joining the picket line it might be marching you know it might be picking up a brick and throwing it through a window it might be using your, your pen i consider the paper that we wrote together uh, a piece of activism you know we're the town criers to say listen we still have after 20 years we still have these racial health care disparities let me just give you a shout out zarina what we found and what we talked about in that paper was that over 20 years there have been more than 300 articles in the literature describing black-white disparities in cardiovascular care. 20-year time period, 300 papers, but at the end of that 20-year time period and at the end of that 300th paper, things were no better than at the beginning uh, of that time period. So just holding that up as a mirror and being a town crier is a piece of of activism. So you, uh, Zarina, you're a physician activist. Thanks, Dr. Peepers.
2: Dr. Capers, we talked about that ninth grade picture of yourself and what that guy was thinking about at the time. If you could, you know, right now, the arc of your career has been just absolutely exemplary. You know, you've impacted so many people. You're a leader of a social movement. You know, you're bringing out conversations that are changing the way we think about our colleagues and. You know, you've had, you've had such tremendous success in this area. If you could go back in time, what would you say to that ninth grade version of yourself in terms of what or how he could accomplish things in the future?
0: Well, first thing I would tell him would be, it, it is really going to happen. Because even though I was uh, very confident and I felt like it was my calling, you know, until you actually get there, and you know, the journey from ninth grade to being a doctor, and you all know this, there are multiple steps, right? So even though I was extremely confident, there are always was at least in one portion of my brain, this, I hope it happens. I hope it happens. I hope it happens. So if I could talk to that ninth grader now, I say, look, dude, it's going to happen. You can relax and enjoy the ride uh, a little bit. It was very important to me. And I think it is for many people, for all of us really, to be successful, to be a pre-planner. I did a lot of daydreaming and I didn't daydream about the next step. I always daydreamed two or three steps ahead. And I really mean that. So even though I knew I wanted to be a heart doctor, When I was a pre-med student in college, I wasn't daydreaming about being a medical student. I was daydreaming about being a cardiology fellow. And when I was a general cardiology fellow, I had fallen in love with intervention like you, Greg. I wasn't daydreaming about being an interventional fellow. I was daydreaming about being an interventional attending. So I was always daydreaming two or three steps ahead. If I could say something to ninth grade, Quinn Capers the fourth, I'd say keep doing that, but also be sure the enjoy every stage. You know, it, it's going to happen. Enjoy every stage.
2: You're reminding me of um, advice I got from a, a dear mentor, Sanjay Desai, who was my program director during residency. And during our sort of exit interview when I was leaving Baltimore to move to Cleveland, he said, Amit, I want you to picture your goal. Okay, so your goal is the the end scene of a movie. And imagine all the scenes on that reel, all the scenes to get to that end scene, whatever that end scene may be. And and think about not just the end scene, what each of those scenes look like on the way to get to that goal and make sure that, you know, you plan your day, you plan your activities, so that way you hit each of those mid scenes to get to that ultimate goal. So I, I really appreciate that.
0: I like that very much. Yep. Your, your, your mentor. I love that. Uh, I love that analogy.
4: Dr. Capers, it's been an amazing opportunity to chat with you during the narratives in cardiology with the cardio nerds. We've learned so much We've been enlightened. And I think a lot of important messages today were were delivered, things that I think will help change medicine moving forward. We thank you for your time. And personally, for me, and I'm sure Zarina feels the same way, you know, it's been an honor to be able to sit down and chat with you and get to do this all through the Cardio nurse platform. Th-
0: thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Amit. Thank you, Zarina. Uh, you, you all are awesome. I mean, this is such an, an awesome platform and such an awesome project i'm proud to be involved with it and thank you so much for letting me have a conversation with you